This week's podcast sponsor is Agility Consulting, a full-service national executive search and talent consulting firm. Agility helps clients find, hire, and support the talent they need to make a difference in the lives of youth. Put them to work for you. Learn more at agilityconsulting.com. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of the EdSurge podcast, where we focus on how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at EdSurge. So what if colleges applied the same kind of market research techniques to improve their offerings that fast food giants like McDonald's use? What might colleges learn about what students really want from their undergrad years if they use that kind of research? And how might they improve the experience? And could it help students better understand what they want out of higher ed? Those are the questions guiding a new book by Michael Horn called Choosing College, How to Make Better Learning Decisions Throughout Your Life. Horn starts with a framework popularized by a famous Harvard Business School professor, Clayton Christensen. It's called the Jobs-to-be-done framework. This framework was used by McDonald's to help improve its milkshakes, among other things, by other businesses. And Horn applies the theory to the process of selecting a college to see what happens. This might seem like a strange mix to many, but it flows pretty naturally from Horn's career journey. He spends part of his time as a fellow for the Clayton Christensen Institute, where this framework emerged, and one of Horn's other jobs is as a chief strategy officer for Entangled Solutions, a consulting and investing firm in the college sector. So he is steeped in all this business language and process. I sat down with Michael Horn last week at a summit for college innovation leaders called HAIL, or Harvesting Academic Innovation for Learners. Horn was a keynote speaker there. So while his presentation about his book won some fans, others at the meeting were frankly skeptical about the idea of bringing this kind of corporate thinking to the academy. Some even suggested there might be a downside to comparing a college education to a milkshake. If you're still out there thinking, wait, wait, what's a milkshake got to do with this? Stay tuned, we get into that. And after you listen, we'd love to hear your thoughts on whether or not this approach could help in college choice or what you think should change in the college admissions process. Just email me a quick note to jeff at edsurge.com and we'll put some highlights of those comments on the show page. Now, here's the conversation. All right, I'm here today with Michael Horn. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. I guess one of the things that um, I wanted to talk about with this book, Choosing College, I guess, first of all, it, it's very much this notion of this framework, this theory of the jobs to be done and yeah. applying it to the college choice. So first, maybe tell us this framework for those who don't know it. Totally, totally. Uh, so the jobs to be done framework is one that built out of uh, Harvard professor Clayton Christensen and my co-author Bob Mesta, who developed this in the mid 90s, basically to explain why do people not adhere to what quote unquote, they're supposed to buy or do things that they're quote unquote, supposed to do uh, when companies uh, create products and services that they're sure the market research shows that everyone will want, and then it turns out that they don't. And their basic conclusion was that companies and institutions tend to segment by the available data to us, by demographic type or product category, but really we as individuals are just trying to make progress in our lives in a given circumstance, and the job to be done represents that progress in that that situation that we uniquely are in and the outcome that we want out of it. And, And what a job captures as a result is not just anything that might be good for us, but really also the trade-offs that we're willing to make, given that you know we don't have all the money and time in the world and we have to make decisions and we have priorities in our lives. And I, I just want to say that I heard Clayton Christensen speak once, and he um, is a pretty good speaker. 
And he was giving this like uh, one I noticed was even referenced in the book, and I'm sure it's one that Bob Moesta, yeah. your co-author, talks about. But this milkshake example, would you go through this order with me? Because I think people, yeah. if they haven't heard it, uh, uh, the example of a milkshake and what jobs to be done there. Yeah, yeah. So the milkshake story is the classic story of jobs to be done. And interestingly enough, Bob Mesta is the milkshake man in the story. So I'll, I'll give the uh, slim cliff notes, I guess. But uh, essentially, in the mid-90s, this fast food company wanted to improve the sale of milkshakes. They knew the exact market share they had relative to Burger King and Wendy's and so forth. And so they called in the average demographic most likely to buy a milkshake and uh, into focus groups. And they basically said, how should we improve this thing? And they got clear feedback and they made changes and sales didn't budge one bit. So instead they called Bob in, uh, which Clay doesn't say when he tells the story, but it is Bob, uh, who basically rather than ask people how to improve the milkshake, he stood in the back of the restaurant for several weeks, uh, for 18 hours a day, taking copious notes of any time someone came in and bought a milkshake. And he, he observed, you know, what time of day was it? What else did they buy? Were they with anyone else? Did they buy anything else? Did they drink the milkshake in the restaurant? Or did they run off to their car and slurp it down as they were driving out? On and on. And at the end of the day, he saw a few interesting things. 80% of milkshakes were sold at two times during the day. 50% during the early morning rush hour commute. And 30% in the late afternoon. Of the 50% in the early morning rush hour commute, and I'm sure all your listeners are like, whoa, that's really gross. Uh, they, every single one of them came in by themselves. They bought nothing but the milkshake and every single one of them went off to their car and drove off slurping down the milkshake. So finally, after watching this for weeks on end, Bob had to know what they were doing. And so he confronted them this time as they were walking outside the restaurant, not to do an intervention, uh, although maybe he should have. But Curiosity intervention. Exactly. And said, uh, you know, could you tell me what, what are you trying to do right now with this milkshake in your hand? What, what's going on in your life? And they sort of stared at him puzzled. And they, he said, well, tell me the last time you were in this situation, what else have you bought to do whatever you're doing right now? And they said, oh, I think I understand what you're saying. You see, I have this 30 minute drive to work right now. I'm not starving right now. It's early morning, but I know if I don't put something in my stomach, I'll be starving by say eight, eight thirty nine. Uh, and so, you know, I come to think of it last week, I hired bagels to do this job and take it from me. Bagels don't do it well at all because they're dry and tasteless. You got to spread cream cheese and jam on them to make them taste good. If the cell phone rings, you got major problems while you're driving. Uh, I've hired ba- uh, excuse me, donuts, uh, but that was terrible because I had to lie to my wife about it. True story. And, uh, uh, you know, she saw right through the lie because when she got in the car that night, the steering wheel was gummy and sticky and she knew exactly what I'd eaten. Uh, I hired bananas once, but that was actually the worst of all things because the stupid banana was gone in 30 seconds and I was starving by 930. But it turns out when I come in here and buy the milkshake, it just does the job perfectly. Because I have no idea what they put in that thing, if it's healthy or not, but it's so thick and viscous, it sinks to the bottom of my stomach and easily keeps me full until about 1130. It's so thick and viscous, it takes me forever to suck up that tiny little straw, so it easily lasts me my 30-minute drive, keeps me occupied while I'm driving. And, uh, you know, God gave me two hands. I've always driven with one, never knew what to do with the right hand, and there's this cup holder here, and it fits perfectly in. And so it turns out that the milkshake did this morning rush hour commute job 
better than its competitors, which weren't just milkshakes, but the bagels, donuts, coffee, Snickers bars, bananas, you name it. Um, late afternoon, same average demographic coming in, but now they were coming in as parents to basically buy it as a snack uh, to placate their children. Um, and they would also buy a Happy Meal equivalent and so forth and sit down in the uh, restaurant and Anyway, I, I'll, I'll short circuit it. But once you realize the progress that these people in the morning were trying to make, you realize what they really wanted was a smoothie with fruit stirred in and so forth, not like a disgusting milkshake for dessert, or I guess a delicious milkshake for dessert, um, but uh, really a smoothie. And that was sort of how the smoothie, the fruit smoothies, Jamba Juice and so forth got invented out of that uh, process. Yeah. So that's, I think that is a good story. If you haven't heard it, I think it's an interesting kind of breaking that frame of like, you know, rethinking the milkshake. So how, uh, why apply this to something as big and expensive, gosh, by huge amounts, a college choice compared to that, you know, uh, dollar menu (laughs) milkshake. Yeah, it's funny, you know, when people say, does the jobs to be done framework work with a big decision? And I would say it absolutely works with a big decision because you spend so much time thinking about it where it's harder to figure out is like an impulse buy, like a pack of gum at the end. There's a job to be done going on there, but it's a little harder to see it. Uh, With college, it's actually enormously uh, rich with detail as we looked at these mini documentaries of a couple hundred students making the choice about whether and where to go to college. Uh, They all have different jobs to be done that they're trying to make, different progress that they're trying to make in their lives. And the research started uh, in 2014, maybe, um, when our question was just, we had a suspicion that Uh, colleges and universities were serving students who had lots of different jobs in their lives all coming to them and it was forcing them to be one size fits all places that was not serving any particular student well with a different job and it was running up administrative overhead costs and so forth that was our hypothesis and we just wanted to dig in and learn what these jobs were as we did the research over a couple years the stories and, and and the jobs that emerged were far different from anything we had expected And we just felt like, gosh, there's some really good advice and valuable information here. We ought to write a book that helps parents, students, uh, and institutions make better decisions. It seems like you've boiled it down, you and your co-author boiled it down into five jobs to be done here. Um, And they're they're very different. Um, And maybe a couple of them are different than people might expect. Do you want to quickly list what those five are? Totally. So the first one is help me get into my best school. So these are students who are looking to get into their best school because... They've done the work. They want the best. Uh, And it's their best, right? It's not necessarily the rankings best, but it's as they define the best. Uh, The second one is help me do what's expected of me. So these are students who are looking to do what someone else expects them to do, go to college. Or please a parent and that kind of thing. Exactly. Please a parent, please an educator, do what their peers are doing just to go along with the flow. Uh, The third one is help me get away. So these are students who are running away from something, an abusive stepfather, uh, a bad family situation, town, bad job, whatever it might be. Very little of why they are going to school is for the school or the education itself, but because societally or socially they can say, I'm going to college, and that's a socially acceptable answer. And so it's a good answer to getting out of a really bad situation. Uh, The fourth one we found we're calling a – help me step it up. So these are students who are looking around themselves and they're like, I like large parts of my life, but this, what I'm doing here right now, this job or whatever it might be, this isn't who I am. And it's now or never, I got to step it up and be someone better. And so they're very clear that they want a direct path to improve their lives in this way. Uh, And then the fifth one is what we're calling help me uh, extend myself. So these are people who are saying, 
I now will make the time and money uh, to to tackle something that I've always wanted to learn. I've been yearning to do this and see if I can do it. And you know what? If it doesn't work out, it's okay also. They're at a place in their life generally where this is a relatively lower risk uh, decision. Uh, the one thing I'll say absent from this uh, are things like uh, help me launch my career or help me get my first job, which if you read all of Clay Christensen and my writings for the previous six or seven years, you would say we all the time wrote, uh, we speculate that the jobs that people have are things like get a career and switch jobs or things like that. And that's just not how real people actually live life or talk about the decision, which was fascinating. So you were wrong a little bit in the previously about think is it i mean isn't though the job to be done still to get a job but you're saying that's not as important as these other five after the break what surprised horn most about what he learned from his research that was an abrupt kind of cut in i admit but we have to put the ad somewhere stay tuned this week's episode is brought to you by agility a company that helps education organizations find hire and keep high quality talent i recently talked with agility's co-founder christina greenberg who stressed the benefits of taking an objective approach to hiring and the pitfalls of selecting a candidate based on culture fit. You really do need to use evidence. There is a level of, of course, judgment that we're all going to make. <laughs> but as much as possible, how do we eliminate our bias? With our clients, we do anti-bias sessions actually with everyone before they meet candidates, right, and interview them. We do an anti-bias session with them. But how do we really think about the quality, skills, competencies that are most necessary for someone to do a great job and not just, oh, I like that person? Because to go back to my first point, I may like them because they look like me or seem like me, right? or culture fit, which I know everyone thinks is a great thing, but actually is often a pitfall. Yeah, you always hear about culture fit. Isn't that so cool out there in the Valley, especially, but you know, all over? And I tell everyone how uncomfortable, I tell everyone I'm very uncomfortable with culture fit because it can also be a screen, right? For someone I feel comfortable Mm. with or someone I like. Like it's almost code for something else that people don't even realize it might be. I think it often is, yeah. Yeah, Not always, right? I'm not saying it always is. And what I tell everyone is of course you have culture, but rather than just saying culture fit, which can be a catch-all for lots of different things, positive and negative, how do we think about the skills, qualities, characteristics that mean that someone's going to be successful here? To find out more about Agility, visit agilityconsulting.com. That's E-D-G-I-L-I-T-Y consulting.com. Now back to the episode. Yeah, so I guess I would say a job to be done is made up of lots of different forces. So it's not a simplistic, gee, if I get a job, I get more money and boom, right? We're complicated human beings. We make re- decisions not just for functional reasons like that, but also social and emotional ones. And a job encapsulates all of those different forces that are going in. And so lowercase job, a career uh, or work gets folded into many of these things in certain ways, but it's not the whole thing. And and I guess when you talk to students, what's so interesting, particularly of the 17, 18-year-old, 19-year-old variety, they might check off on a survey that they want to, you know, work or job out of a college. They have no idea what work or job or career is. I mean, the teen labor force participation rate is the lowest it's ever been really in the nation's history right now. Right. The summer job is a, is not the way it was even when you and I were kids. Correct. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I taught tennis, right? For five years, people scooped ice cream, right? Like that just doesn't happen nearly as much. And so people don't have a concept of what it is to go into a job, earn money, report on time, all those things around it. And for them to, uh, so this, the sense of, well, 
I know my parents really want me to get a job out of this. And I suspect, by the way, if we'd interviewed parents, that lowercase job would have come out much bigger because of the high cost of college and this question around return on investment. But it's not how students themselves are talking about it so much. It's in there for sure. They want the college to be good enough that it will get a job on the other side, uh, for example, and to help me get into my best school uh, or help me do what's expected of me. It's a safety net. Well, at least it'll set me up for life success, even though I'm not excited about this experience. But it's not the driving force that actually causes them to choose one college or another or choose to go like I think it has uh, come up in the popular narrative. That's really interesting. And, you know, I I was, you know, these stories that you have in each of the chapters or even each of the sections where you're looking at these five jobs are really interesting. These, you know, the the actual students, as you mentioned, that you all interviewed for the for the research. And I wanted to there were a couple things. Um on the first one of the choosing the college. I was struck, and maybe it sounds like you were too by the writing, that s- some of these things were to get into that college that was the the highest reach or whatever you want to say, your reach school. Mm-hmm. They were not always doing things that they even wanted to do in their extracurriculars or, or you know, as they were high school students. I, you know, I think I was – so I definitely fit into this job. I should say that. I was definitely in the help me get into my best school job. Uh, when they, um, one of our researchers actually interviewed me for the book and to diagnose me, and, and I fell into that for that one, and I also fell into it for business school. And that was like, oh, my gosh, wow. Uh, But what's interesting is I think that there's probably subcategories within this, which we don't get into in the book. But there's probably intrinsically uh, motivated people who say, I want this learning so much that I'm going to go to my best school in that field or whatever it is. Uh, And there's some people who are, like you said, much more extrinsically motivated uh, around these questions. And sort of uh, we have one student we talked to, Colby, we call him in the book, who uh, you know, he, he doesn't do one club that he's really excited about because it's going to count as a class and it's not weighted in an honors way and therefore it's going to bring down his GPA. And instead he signs up for another club that he knows will look good on his resume, even though it has nothing to do with the foreign affairs and stuff like that that he's interested in. Uh, and, you know, he's totally motivated about trying to play the game as opposed to what the, the school's experience itself and what it will get him intrinsically. And it's so interesting. I mean, I'm not the first to write about this. Frank Bruni wrote about it in his book, uh, which really jumped out to me after these interviews. Uh, and, and, and it makes sense. And I think we all know these students. But as we sort of read headlines in the New York Times and other places, we impute sort of more knowingness and power to them than maybe is there at the uh, present time they're actually making their choices. Yeah, I'm sure some educators will be like heartbroken of this person who joins the Model UN, not because he wants to at all, but because he thinks that'll look better um, on his resumes to college. Yeah. Yeah. And like you say, maybe it's not the first time people have said some of these things, but um, just the details and the anecdotes are really interesting. So can you, what maybe surprised you most then other than maybe it's, maybe it's that you were a little bit wrong about the the job to be done. I'm getting a career, but what else surprised you in the, in the research? Yeah. Well, so that definitely surprised me. I don't like being wrong, but uh, (laughs) that having been said, Bob Mesta told me, he said, you know, no one is smart enough to know what the jobs are before you actually talk to real people and see their real lives. And so that was very affirming in that way. Uh, I think what surprised me most, frankly, um, was how different some of these jobs are from each other in terms of how you would serve them, right? If you're in the help me get away job, one that the furthest thing from my consciousness, that you're just running from something, not necessarily towards something, success there is getting away. Like once you've gotten away, you've been successful. And then to have a four-year college experience that costs a lot of money on top of that, 
maybe not the right thing. And so a big conclusion that comes from the book is that many more students probably ought to be taking gap years. Uh, and my wife has joked, I can't believe it took you an entire book writing process to figure out a gap year might be valuable. But alas, that's where I was. Uh, and I think it's incredibly valuable. I leave with it. And, and when I say gap year, I don't mean gallivanting around Europe and just backpacking and so forth. But structuring a gap year to have a series of immersive experiences where you take part-time jobs, internships, apprenticeships, take some online courses, do some coding boot camps, whatever it might be, and yes, some travel, uh, to learn about yourself. What do you like and not like? What, what's, what, what excites you? What, what are you passionate about? What's your purpose right now in your life? So that you can then apply to college and come in full of motivation and excitement about why you're going. And I think far too many students came out clearly from the research, Don't can't answer that why question. And we ought to help them build that uh, that muscle up. You know, it's interesting because I think even when I was, saw that gap year recommendation in the book, I expected it to immediately be, and you mentioned there are these companies that have emerged yeah. to help you design your gap year. And those are dreamy sounding, but some of them are quite expensive. Yeah. Um, but you even gave examples that seemed like you were saying, this is a good example, where the woman started off working at Taco Bell. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't necessarily some sort of grand curriculum gap year, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, there's some great programs, Global Citizen Year and others that have come out, uh, Winterline, others um, that have emerged to create the structured gap year, as you said. Some of them even offer financial aid now. But I think you can piece together a meaningful gap year where you're actually earning money uh, and not necessarily just spending money uh, to go on these exotic places or spending money to go to a college that you're not ready for. and I think that's a really important uh, thing to think about, basically, and, and that you can patch together a set of experiences, and it might start with a Taco Bell. It might then move to uh, an internship in a real estate office. And at each stage, you know, every 30 days or so, you should step back and say, what did I learn about myself? What do I like? And more importantly, perhaps, what do I not like? What do I say I don't want to do that again? So that you're cataloging this understanding of who you are and what excites you. And you might say like, hey, I think I really liked this line of work, but not this part of it. Okay, great. So now let's talk about five other careers that have something similar to that. And then you, it's not that you have to know exactly what you want to do at the end of this, but just that you can get to a place where you're going to go to a college experience that is speaking to you and your interests. Yeah, I mean, I think that was, it, it made me think in the example where I think the, the example with the Taco Bell ended up, the woman ended up being a nurse. Yes. Like she wanted to go back and, be a, 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 you know, figured out through working as a receptionist after that or something like that, which you can sort of imagine this path. But it also made me think, well, isn't that the summer jobs that... I did or that a lot of people used to do that they don't do as much. It seems like there, there are these interesting things that, um, and all that, and with the job to be done about getting into the right college, it's like, have, have people sort of misplaced some of their direction in these earlier times? Maybe. Yeah. I a thousand percent agree. I mean, look, we didn't write about it in the book, but I think what you're tapping at is exactly right, which is many more students ought to be working during their summers, not necessarily going for that highly prized internship. And, you know, I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland. So NIH, where, you know, you did some sort of lab rat experiment and look great for college. You know, the simple job where you're learning skills, learning how to work with others, building your character, building your understanding of who you are and who you, what you like to do. Those are really formative and important experiences. And people ought to have more of those, I think. They also, I would say, high schools, I think, need to do a better job of creating opportunities for students to have a myriad of experiences in high school. I mean, we've been 
Not to say achievement and learning reading and math isn't important, but I think we've so over-indexed on that that we've cut out a lot of the opportunities for extracurriculars uh, in the curriculum itself. We've cut out uh, a lot of the other classes that I think are important that high schools used to offer. I think high schools should be much more intentionally thinking about how do I curate a set of experiences that can actually teach students about who they are much earlier too. I mean, one of my formative experiences in high school uh, was the black and white newspaper uh, at Walt Whitman High School. And it taught me that I liked writing. It taught me I liked managing. It taught me I liked putting together a product. And I loved that experience. And that directly led into everything I did since. Uh, and if were it not for that, you know, I don't know where I would be to, uh, today in life. And I just, I think high schools need to uh, make sure that they curate these experiences more intentionally for students so that they have the opportunities. That might obviate the need for a gap year. Who knows? Uh, But right now, high schools aren't doing it, so we need to find it somewhere. So um, what what do you think are the – I guess – this is going to be one of those questions of which I think you try to answer in the book of like why – who needs this book or why buy this book? In some ways, like this is a really interesting book maybe for people who are like – in colleges are working through understanding, you know, the students of the future or the students of the, of the current. But how, how would this help a student if you, some of these things seem so intuitive and you're sort of, you know, people are kind of doing these things anyway. You're just now figuring it out in your analysis. Yeah. So how would this actually, why would this framework help a student? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think a lot of the jobs to be done we have, we don't, we can't see ourselves in them and we can't articulate it. And so what I hope this does, and it's a big question, uh, is can we make the unconscious of what's going on in, in, in the background of your mind conscious for you so that you can actually recognize where you are in life and not make some big missteps? Uh, fundamentally, again, I, I said to help me get away before, you shouldn't be choosing a four-year experience that costs a lot of money if you're in that job. Uh, help me do what's expected of me. If you can opt out and try to find a different pathway, I think in, incredibly important to do so. Uh, if you're in help me extend myself, uh, to be able to see that in yourself and say, you know, a lot of learners that we talked to who had that job, their biggest barrier to doing something was that they needed someone else to give them permission to go back and learn. Well, if you can give yourself permission because you recognize where you are and recognize that it's a low risk uh, uh, place in your life, that's huge because then you can keep going on this lifelong learning journey that you're on. And so I, I, I hope that students are able to see themselves, see their situations, and make decisions in accordance with it. I will say, you know, just to be candid, jobs to be done historically has been used to help institutions or organizations build better products and services. We're at Southern New Hampshire University right now. They've used this very famously to uh, help craft their online experience and differentiate it from their on-ground experience. And I think that makes a heck of a lot of sense. As Bob uh, Mesta said, he wants to sort of dedicate the next part of his life to helping the consumers themselves and the students and and people on the demand side make better choices because this is a two-way street. It's not just about offering better products and services or experiences. It's also about us making better choices and understanding where we are. I think the last thing on that note that I would say is – A lot of times as as students, you sort of feel like you're just sort of forced down this road of of, I got to go along because everyone is. And if this book gives you a moment to step back and pause and take stock of things that, you know, I think that in and of itself would be an enormous contribution to help them step away from the rat's race of the rankings and so forth. I almost hear you saying 
don't drink the milkshake if you only want a smoothie. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, if you were someone that understood the actual progress you were trying to make, what different decision could you make? Well, thank you so much for for talking about your book and sharing these ideas. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This has been a bonus episode of the Ed Surge Podcast. We'll be back Tuesday with a new episode. Remember, we drop new installments every Tuesday morning. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Ed Surge On Air wherever you get your podcast. So you'll be alerted that way to all the new episodes that come out. This one was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. And remember, you can share your thoughts on this episode at jeff at edsurge.com. See you next time. Thanks for listening.